Well, uh, thanks, Ed, for allowing me to tag along to your event. Uh, this is a really wonderful book, and let me tell you quickly why I think that is, and uh, you know, what I think some of the lessons we can, we in the building can uh, learn from the book as students of the law and uh, as students of argumentation. Um, as lawyers and law students, we're introduced to Supreme Court justices through the format of judicial opinions. And if you haven't caught on by this point of your law school career, I'm going to break it to you that opinions are kind of dry. Um, they're dry for a reason, which is that the purpose of a court is to resolve cases between two parties who view the dispute as one of I mean, utmost seriousness. It's really life or death sometimes for these parties. And that's why even the most creative judge and the most creative litigators, they hammer their written presentation of issues into a particular format. And you're familiar with it now. It's the issue, rule, application, conclusion structure. Uh, and that can have the tendency to drain writing of its flair and personality. Now, nobody ever accused Justice Scalia of failing to write with flair and personality. But even he, I think, understood the need to work within the traditional approach to judicial craft. And that's where this collection of speeches comes in, because each of the speeches that's been collected reflects how marvelous a writer and speaker the justice was when he stepped outside of the restrictions imposed by the judicial opinion format. It's a collection of writings that reflect just how insightful and funny and charming the justice could be when he was writing and speaking on a topic of his choosing. Um, that leads me to what we can take away from the book. Naturally, of course, there are the substantive lessons, um, such as you know some of my favorites are speeches on important historical figures, what we can learn from George Washington's actions or from Abraham Lincoln's or William Howard Taft's approach to interpreting the Constitution. Um, but there's also just a more general lesson um, or general lessons that we can learn about how to write briefly to the point in a way that captures an audience's attention, um, which we can pick up just by reading the book. Uh, so let me read you, this is one of my favorite sentences in the book, uh, for one reason or the other, maybe, maybe it'll be one of yours when I read it. Here's the justice speaking about his childhood um, in mid-20th century New York City. Uh, and he says, quote, there were no soccer moms because there was no soccer. Americans overwhelmingly preferred baseball a game in which a lot of players stand around while not much happens to soccer, a game in which people run back and forth furiously while not much happens. <laughs> so just think for a moment about what makes that sentence tick, because here's another way I could put the exact same point. Well, you know, here's, here's my way of putting the point. It is ironic that Americans have replaced enthusiasm for one low-scoring sport, baseball, with enthusiasm for another low-scoring sport, soccer. So the sentence that I just read you conveys the same basic point as the justice's sentence. Not quite as funny, is it? And you can think for a moment about why that is. Um, you know, the use of the repetition, while not much happens, to create a sense of parallelism between baseball and soccer in the justice's far funnier formulation. Or the show-don't-tell aspect, which conveys the irony without hitting the, the reader over the head with the point that the sentence is supposed to convey this amusing um, irony about change in American interests. Um, the use of the word furiously toward the end of the sentence to achieve the great image of a soccer player running around aimlessly during a game. Well, after all, you know, all games are just people running around aimlessly. That's really why they're fun and amusing. Um, it's just a wonderfully crafted yet simple sentence that reflects the way uh, with words that the justice has and the way in which you can use words to convey a point effectively. Uh, you might think that Justice's, Justice Scalia's ability to write like this was innate um, rather than learned. Uh, but there's, I think, a second lesson to be learned here. And it, uh, it's uh, stated most clearly in uh, the Justice's son's uh, introduction to the book, Christ Christopher Scalia's introduction. Um, writing, the Justice used to say, it's not easy. In fact, and this is a quote, it's hard as hell. Um, or as I remember the Justice saying to me, I hate writing. I enjoy having written. Um, for those of us, you know, we only look at the end product. You see the judicial opinion um, of Justice Scalia or one of the other justices. It can just be so intimidating. You see that and you think, I could not possibly do it. Um, but it's important to understand the effort that went into uh, refining the voice that we hear. It comes from a lifetime of learning 
and trying and failing to do uh, what they're ultimately able to achieve. And it comes from hours crafting each individual passage. One of uh, the most memorable images of my uh, clerkship here, I wonder if uh, this was actually something the Justice did every year or, or just uh, decided to do during our year. He had a hat, which he called his writing hat, and he would put it on, and it actually looked absurd. I mean, it was this absurd uh, sort of big, goofy baseball hat type thing. Not a normal baseball hat, big, goofy one. Um, and uh, But he'd be in his room, and you could see he was concentrating on uh, the written word and uh, trying to produce um, writing that he felt was up to par. Finally, um, as, uh, as Ed pointed out just a few moments ago, I think there's a really important lesson for us in the beautiful forward that Justice Ginsburg has written for the collection of speeches. And I think it's, you know, the Ginsburg-Scalia friendship is one that many have remarked on and marveled about in some ways over the years. Uh, there's even an opera that's been written about it. But I think that both Justice Ginsburg and Justice Scalia found the fascination to be just a little baffling. I mean, they didn't, they didn't try to like each other. They just did. They liked each other. Um, it was second nature. Um, so as Justice Scalia puts, uh, sorry, as Justice Ginsburg puts it in her forward, one of the lessons we can take away, as she puts it, is if our friendship encourages others to appreciate that some very good people have ideas with which we disagree, I will be overjoyed, as I am confident that Justice Scalia would be. So those of us who knew him can hear Justice Scalia's voice in every sentence of this book and his chortle after every joke, um, which is in a way the highest praise that I can think to give it. So one of the things I like about this book the most is that it, it reminds me why I think Justice Scalia is a great justice. And it's quite true that very often students ask me, because they know I clerk for Justice Scalia, they say, don't you think Justice Scalia is the smartest justice when you are on the court? And I have to answer always, honestly, no. They're all very smart. Um, he had no better than a one in, one in nine chance of being the smartest. And actually, just within this room, I'd say, if you actually had a sheer intelligence test, like your computer was broken and you had to pick a justice to fix it, I think, and again, I don't let this out of this room, I think I might have picked Justice Stevens. Um, because he was seemingly wicked smart. But yet Justice Scalia, and this, this, first of all, this acknowledgement always surprises students. And I think it's because you all, in your career so far, sheer smarts, you know, like doing well on the SATs and LSATs, have been the keys to success. So you're sort of puzzled. You're like, well, how can he not be the smartest justice? He's so influential. And I, and I agree with that. I think he's the most influential justice in my lifetime. And what are the keys to his influence? It's two things. First, absolutely great writing. Uh, writing that he works hard on, but which my uh, colleagues here have already uh, read you some passages, and I'll read you a few passages. But he really, really worked hard on that. Um, and indeed, in this book, actually, he has a passage where he, where I realize now he would have agreed with me that he's not the, that, that he might not be the smartest justice. I'll leave, I'll, I'll remain agnostic, okay? But he actually says when he was at Harvard Law School, he, uh, he was, um, he didn't think he was the smartest person on law review. He said there were a lot of smart people that were wicked smart and smarter than I am, but I wasn't impressed with their writing. I could write circles around them, and he wasn't being arrogant. He was being honest. He was being truthful. And I think that that's true. And so great writing is in this book on literally every single page. It's a joy to read. And, and, I'll, and, and I'll read you a few passages in a, minute, in a minute. But good writing is not enough. Good writing, if it were just that, would not make him the most influential justice. It instead is a commitment to principles that makes him important. You know, good writing alone would be a great tool, a great, like a great... Uh, powerful engine on the back of a boat. But if it's got no rudder, it's just going to go around in circles. But Justice Scalia had a firm commitment to certain principles. And in law, I think, and one of the great things about this book is, is I know his principles from law, originalism, textualism, commitment to stare decisis, other things that, that you probably have known about, commitment to uh, separation of powers. But what this book shows you is his larger set of principles about life. 
And I think that's really valuable. I must say I learned things about Justice Scalia reading this book. And, and maybe that's sad to say because I, I wish I'd known him maybe better. Um, but I definitely learned some things about his commitment to a larger set of life principles. And they were really, it was really inspiring to me. Even though I thought I knew him well, I think I, I learned some things. Um, so, we've, so let me go through just the, those two features that are, that are in Justice Scalia's jurisprudence, his writing, and his commitment to principle, and, and show you what they're like in this book. Um, first of all, the writing is, is just really amazing. Um, it, witty writing, writing runs throughout the book. Aditya already actually picked what I had already noted was my favorite sentence, the thing about the soccer players running furiously up and down. The, um, the field while not much happens. I just think that's just a, a wonderful uh, passage. But there are other great passages here. Um, for example, what's the difference between government and religion? Governments, quote, responsibility is the here, not the hereafter. What a nice way to sort of summarize the vast gulf between you know, what government does and what faith does. I just think that's marvelous. Another one, just, just witty, he said uh, when he was, uh, gave his first commencement address, he said he asked a bunch of friends what should he talk, what, what to talk about for his first commencement address. And surprisingly, they were unanimous. They all said to talk about 15 minutes. And again, this is just like a small sampling, and they don't even do it justice because this is just like it's certainly every single speech. Has a, has a passage that will make you laugh out loud, um, which I think is, is really amazing. I don't think I've read a book that has made me laugh out loud every 10 or 15 pages in a long, long time. Maybe I, maybe I need to read more, read more witty writers. Um, but the second thing about this uh, is, is it's not just you know, witty writing that you know, is sort of going around in circles. It's, it's the principles that you learn from this book. And I think that there's, the, the book is divided into six sections. One of them is on law. And for those of you who are just learning about Justice Scalia's legal principles, that might be a great section to, learn, to, to read. But for me, it was the other sections, because I learned more. Because I sort of had read, I've read his, his judicial opinions over the course of many years. I've read his law review articles. I was quite familiar with his, with his judicial principles, his legal principles. But it was the other areas of the book that were really uh, uh, amazing to me and really sort of informed me. And the first, and I'll just mention three things here that I thought were most important. First is his absolute deep appreciation for moral character. This comes out all the way through the book. And he makes some really, really good points. For one, he says the lesson he drew from the Holocaust um, was really quite amazing. He said that without a firm commitment to uncompromised standards of human conduct, even the most educated, most progressive, most cultured countries in the world could commit unspeakable hor horrors. And what the point he makes is that in the mid-20th century, early to mid-20th century, Germany was the leader in education, in science, in culture, in art, basically any field you could imagine. And yet here, in this great center of learning, you get unspeakable horror. And I had never thought of it that way. But I think it's, it, it is a really good principle. I mean, we're here at an, uh, an institute of education, and, and I think a fine one. But it is important to remember that. I think that all the education in the world won't prevent you from doing very, very, broad, uh, very, very bad things. Um, he, it also actually comes out in his admiration for George Washington. I'd never known George Washington was his favorite founder. I would have thought, you know, I might have thought Jefferson, although I would have quickly dismissed that. I would have thought Jefferson because he's, you know, started the University of Virginia and, and Justice Scalia is an academic and Justice Scalia taught here, although there's very obvious reasons for people who know Justice Scalia that he would not like Jefferson, especially on issues of faith. Um, but I might have thought Madison or Hamilton, who are the co-authors of the Federalist Papers and who are brilliant writers and, 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 and are frequently quoted. But um, Scalia's admiration was instead for Washington. And he makes this great point, you know, where you know, today we have you know, Madison and Hamilton are like two icons, right? Hamilton's the icon of the left right now with the play, right? And uh, Madison is literally, literally the icon of the Federalist Society. It's the seal, it's the silhouette out there in the front of the hall. And yet, and yet Scalia writes, 
All those well-published intellectual geniuses looked up to, deferred, and stood in awe of George Washington. What was there about the man that produced that result? It must have been character. And I, I, I mean, it's, Washington appears throughout this book, and that was really an amazing surprise to me um, in, reading this, in, in reading this book. Obviously, another principle, I'm going to only talk about three, so the second one is, is faith. I mean, that, is, that was not a surprise to me, but it is a surprise to me just how often it comes up. It, it is, you know, every dozen pages or so it comes up, even in the most amazing uh, places, like uh, um, I had already mentioned the um, uh, turkey hunting. So there's one point where he talks about, uh, he's in one essay where he talks about turkey hunting, and he says, well, one of the things I like about it is it affords quiet time in the, in, alone in the woods where you can pray to the Creator. And I just thought, man, this, this really shows how his faith was always a constant companion for him and kept his moral compass. And the third principle, which has already been mentioned a little bit, is, is Justice Scalia's love of, of friendship above politics. And I think those two things, those, that, that very tangible aspect of his personality went with the other two. It was because he believed in faith in God and therefore, he believed in the, in the inherent nobility of the human spirit. And he believed in character, even among people he disagreed with for, from a political purpose. And so we've already talked about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, and I think that, you know, obviously her, his friendship with her is well known. But I was struck by his eulogy for a woman named Mary Lawton, who is a very, very famous, he's, she's unknown outside the Beltway. Inside the Beltway, though, she was like the quintessential public servant. Um, so, so inspiring was she that there's awards both from the Department of Justice and the American Bar Association in her honor, named in her honor. So that's pretty impressive. Um, and Scalia, when he went to the Department of Justice for a political position, the Office of Legal Counsel um, in the 1970s, he was warned that Mary Lawton might be, quote, too ideological and of the wrong ideology. Well, it turns out they became good friends because of her irrepressible personality. Um, she was never a brooder, never a mope. Um, and, and, and even, he writes, in her anger, it was such an exuberant, hearty, cheerful anger that it was more fun to be in the company of an angry Mary than to be in the company of a satisfied and contented someone else. You read those words and realize this is a person who really loves you know, the, the interaction with great other characters, and that that is far superior to him than the politics of the day. Well, that's just a little introduction to what I think is a, is a marvelous book, and I highly encourage you to read it, not so much for the law. Um, that's one-sixth of this book. Uh, it's the rest, I think, that gives you a guiding principles to, uh, to life, and that I think I learned quite a bit. Well, thanks, uh, John and Aditya. Let me, um, maybe we can engage in a bit of conversation now. I'm struck um, by so much of what you said. Let me just uh, pick a, a, a few things. Um, first, yes, what he had to say about George Washington and how George Washington's insights occurred throughout is really striking. And of course, it reinforces your point that intellect is not the, the highest value. And you see throughout, including in his speech on civic education, that he understood that um, we need to cultivate the virtues of citizenship. Uh, that, that what makes an American is in part, he emphasizes, um, embracing the, the creed of this country, the commitment to liberty and equality. Um, but that needs to be implemented in practice by the, the virtues um, of, of a citizen. Um, the tributes at the end, I have to say, when, when Chris and I uh, re received all these speeches, you know, there was sort of a mess. There were these different piles of paper and these electronic files. And we dove in and, and like, wow, had no idea that he had written so many speeches on so many topics. I think some clerks in later years had seen a binder of some of his best speeches, but it was unknown, un unknown to us. And I spent, you know, a period of, of of, you know, a couple weeks during the midst of the Gorsuch confirmation process, um, burying myself in these speeches and just delighting in them. And I run across one, one of these tr tr uh, tributes, and I, I, I remember thinking, 
Gosh, this is so beautifully written, but no one knows who this person is. It's too bad we can't include this in the book. And then we run across another, and another. And then after uh, about a dozen or so of these, I figured, when we see Justice Scalia writing about what he values about these people, and we have uh, a collection of them, it tells us as much about this person as it does about these other people. So I think the, the, the tributes, um, the one to Mary Lawton, as you pointed out, is beautiful. The one to Emerson Spees is, is, is one of my favorites. Um, and you also see in these, in these farewells things that I think would have to cross our own minds in, 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 in reflecting on um, the loss of Justice Scalia. There's one farewell that begins, it is the greatest curse of advancing years that our world contracts as friends who, not, who cannot be replaced with insights into life that are not elsewhere available to us, leave us behind. Um, and his farewell, his eulogy to Emerson Spees ends, there was indeed a perpetually youthful, almost childlike quality about Emerson, the best qualities of youth and childhood, cheeriness, enthusiasm, energy, openness, utter lack of affectation, bright, clear colors. We all miss them. Um, so uh, again, in, in, in reading these tributes, it's difficult not to, and one sees immediately the, the quality of the person, uh, qualities of the person um, making the, the tribute. Um, the Scalia-Ginsburg friendship, I think in many ways, uh, in this divided, polarized time, is a, uh, is a model for um, all of us. It's very easy to pigeonhole people, it's very easy to um, think, oh, I can't be friends with this person because of X, Y, and Z. I guess in DC that happens all the time now. Uh, and here are people who uh, formed a friendship while you know, knowing that they had strong differences with each other, uh, but they could still appreciate the good qualities in each other and savor those qualities. And you know, what, what, what a, a um, greater country we could be if more of us um, were able to do that um, across ideological lines. Uh, there's lots of talk about his, his, his writing. I'll just add that I just remember watching him as he, as he wrote was a fascinating experience. Because I remember seeing him at the keyboard, this intense concentration, almost as though the mu he had muscles in his head that were churning to generate a thought. And then suddenly there'd be that aha moment when everything sang. Uh, and you know, he would, he would you know, writing is something that needs to fully engage your mind. Every word counts. He knew that. And sometimes, well, it's important to understand, he did not be writing as a way to sort of mask your way to your conclusion. More often, you know, there'd be plenty of times when he would, he would come and, and say, this doesn't write. And what that meant is that the intuition that he had about um, the, the proper legal conclusion, in the course of writing, in the course of working his way through the obstacles, he discovered, no, he couldn't get there. That somehow he had to rethink things or, or end up in a different, uh, a different place. So I think that, um, is, that reflects the fact that um, he was always fully engaged in writing and making sure that, he had, that there was intellectual rigor and that he wasn't simply um, uh, papering over uh, his, his conclusion. You two have a, other topics here we can discuss? Well, on that last point, I do think that uh, the, the writing was amazing how much he worked at it. And I, I had the same experience of, of the, you know, looking over his shoulder while he was in front of his computer. And he would write something, and I'd go, that sounds good. And he'd go, no. He'd, you know, backspace, backspace, backspace. And be like, and then he'd go, eh, that's not still quite right. And he'd erase it. And, you know, each one I would think was pretty good, maybe better than I could write. Um, and then he'd finally come up with a way of expressing his thought and it was, you know, I could see that, you know, he was making it better and better. And that really was, uh, it taught me a lot about writing. And the other thing that you said about his writing was that, uh, which, 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 which was true, is that it was his way of really thinking through a case. And I actually learned that that is the right way to, to think through something, to actually put it down on paper and see how it, see how it is. And it was more than once, I have to acknowledge, that... Um, 
he would be looking at some draft paragraph that I wrote, and he'd say, no, you're not giving the devil his due. The argument on the other side of this is stronger than you're making it out to be. This is a little bit of a straw man. So he'd be like, you know, you've got to really address the hard point here. And, you know, rather than just paper it over. And I think actually that is what good judges do, not just Justice Scalia. But bad judges tend to sort of throw everything into a footnote that's hard or just ignore it entirely. Um, really great judges. Enough, enough of Judge Posner. <laughs> but really great judges do, you know, sort of put the hardest issue on a pedestal and say, I want to talk about this. It's often why really good judges get certiorari granted against them, uh, which, which I think many bad lower court judges think, oh, I don't want to get the Supreme Court to review because they might reverse. But good judges think, no, you know, I'm going to be fair, I'm going to say, you know, what the hard intellectual issue is, and oftentimes there'll be uh, diversity of opinion on that, rather than like, uh, there was one case that I saw where the, 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 uh, the, you read the lower court opinion and, and the uh, principle, the argument that was in the cert petition was simply not there at all, like the statute that they were relying on just wasn't cited. I was like, well, they must have not raised the argument below, so like I called for the record, and that was their number one argument. It was this statute, and they devoted like a third of their brief to it. It's not mentioned in the lower court opinion. Um, they got the lower court opinion got reversed 9-0 by the Supreme Court. I mean, that's just bad judging. You'd never see that from Justice Scalia. He was always trying to find what's the best argument on the other side, and I'm going to address it fairly. And if I can't, if it won't write, then maybe I'll change my, my outcome too. So, um, I mean, uh, I think the, the two things that uh, stand out for me uh, from, from the comments that, that John and Ed have made are um, the justice's love of George Washington. It's something that I, I remember from uh, the clerkship here. And I think what makes it unusual is that um, those of us, and, and I think, I mean, I count everybody in this room, and certainly everybody on the court among this group, who have excelled academically in their career, they tend place more uh, weight on the virtues of academic excellence, being abil ability to write or ability to reason, uh, to come up with creative novel ideas. And one might expect, uh, as a result, Justice Scalia would be uh, tempted to choose a Thomas Jefferson or um, one of the great writers of that generation as his favorite founder. Um, and I think, you know, it says something about him that he, he picks George Washington, who really was the glue of that entire generation and held together a band of people who would conceivably have been at each other's throats had it not been for the one leader. Um, so, um, so I mean, I think uh, it, it, the, the passage that John read out about what they must have admired, his character, is uh, it's a theme that runs through the entire book. Um, and I remember talking about it with Justice uh, during the clerkship year. Um, about writing, I mean, the, the, one, um, uh, the one experience that stands out for me is, so this was deeper into the clerkship, and I, um, you know, we worked collaboratively, collaboratively with the justice on opinions, and there was one opinion in a, in a very obscure case that I had been able to work on, um, and I was so proud of some of the writing that I had put into it, and I remember the justice reworks it and cuts out entire sections Initially, I was just so taken aback. I was like, I can't believe that this has been cut out. It's such a powerful point that we could include. And later, I got to appreciate just the, the thought that less is more. I mean, he was trimming the opinion down to size so that uh, the more powerful points, the, the, the meat of the opinion came through, and we didn't have a lot of filler that distracted the reader. Um, and that's something that you see from uh, the speeches as well. Though he always thought there was something to trim, so I learned at some point I had to put in filler so he would cut that and leave it. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had that tip. Uh, I, I want to highlight, again, just as an illustration of how the um, deep and the very amusing mix themselves together so much in his speeches. John quoted the, the, the passage from Turkey Hunting about praying to the creator while out hunting. Just a paragraph or two later we have, one of my most humbling moments came while turkey hunting. I took a shot at a gobbler, and he went right down, flapped a little, and went down. 
I was so excited I jumped out of the box stand and hurried to him. I got about five feet away and he lifted his head, looked up at me, and ran away. And I left my gun back in the box stand. Um, well, why don't we um, open it up to, to um, questions and discussion. I, I guess I will highlight, I said this to some of you, I guess, while you're getting lunch, so pardon, pardon me for repeating it again, but I think that it has the advantage of, of being true. Um, and I, I say this to someone who, who um, repeatedly has to remind his wife that the key to happiness is low expectations. Um, but um, this, you will love this book. If you think you might like this book, you will love this book. Uh, if you know people who you think you might, might like it, they will love it. Um, the reactions we've gotten so far have, have, just, have been just wonderful. Perhaps my favorite response is from the actor uh, Edward Giro, uh, who um, masterfully depicts Justice Scalia in The Originalist. Uh, he tweeted out, can't put it down, hilarious, incisive, brilliant. We'll read and reread again and again. Uh, and uh, you know, th so th there are still some copies left over there. Amazon, Costco have plenty of copies available. When you're struggling during Christmas, uh, before Christmas to, to figure out what to get for your siblings or parents or cousins, hey, here's the answer. <laughs> um, so questions, comments on, on, on any of this? Yes, sir. I, yeah, I've been reading the book about halfway through. Um, I kind of noted that in the whole chapter where he gives speeches on faith, which is kind of like, they reminded me of something a priest would give, like a sermon. Um, but then the other parts of the book are like other kind of sermons, too, in the sense that he tends to be kind of preaching about the secular value of the Constitution and all the checks and balances and federalism and all these the, the structural protections of the of the document and he goes spent a lot I mean a lot of his speeches in that book relate to that. I'm wondering how that unique to him or to other like what is kind of the norm for Supreme Court justices or federal judges giving public speaking, what's uh, what's the typical I think what's the typical object is that is that unique to him or well, that's a big question. Let me try to address it. Um, again, I think Justice Scalia was always a teacher at heart. I would say teacher rather than, than, than preacher. Uh, and you'll see in these speeches that he liked to go to audiences and, and tell them um, what they didn't believe. <laughs> Uh, he um, he liked to challenge uh, his audiences. I have in mind um, that 30 years ago, the legal culture uh, was dramatically different from what it is now. Justice Scalia was a voice uh, crying in the wilderness, and uh, he believed that he had a responsibility, uh, including through the Federalist Society, to uh, help reform uh, judging, reform uh, Supreme Court decision-making by uh, emphasizing uh, principles of originalism, uh, talking about uh, how the Constitution ought to be interpreted. So he was very much an evangelist, and uh, he saw that um, as uh, part of his job. And I think we see the transformation uh, from then till now. I mean, that's a manifestation of what uh, Professor Duffy referred to as Justice Scalia's um, great influence. But I think we see also that uh, Justice Scalia um, had a lot of thoughts on a lot of other topics and was happy to accept invitations from groups large and small to speak on topics uh, that um, were uh, not at their core about the law. I mean, you had a, 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 a chaplain at the Marine Corps Air Station in remote Cherry Point, North Carolina, call him out of blue and say, will you come down and speak for our prayer breakfast? I'm never thinking that the justice might say yes. Uh, it's not the worst thing to do is say no. Well, he said yes, and his beautiful speech on tradition um, is, uh, is in this book. You had his uh, alma mater, uh, Xavier High, uh, invite him back. Actually, the, the, 
more precisely the junior ROTC regiment at Xavier High and invite him back for the regiment's uh, uh, big anniversary celebration. Uh, you know, very rich speech on the, on the, on the, on the, on the virtue of courage there. So um, in terms of what other justices uh, do or have done, I, I'd say there's a lot of um, variation. I think, justice, I think there are um, justices now, um, uh, including Justice Ginsburg, Justice Kagan, Justice Sotomayor, who do a lot of um, public speaking. Um, I don't know um, how broad the range of their talks is. I don't think that um, Justice Kagan has ever spoken to the National Wild Turkey Federation, which, by the <laughs> way, Justice Scalia did twice. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, I think that uh, he found that people were interested in what he had to say and that he could, uh, he could speak consistent with his job. I would just say I want to emphasize one thing, which I've already mentioned, but I want to re-emphasize it, which is in terms of breadth, the one thing that I think is really unique about Justice Scalia, many other justices talk about legal principles, but his speeches on religion and faith and the importance of that uh, to, ca to, to be a cornerstone for character. Um, I think that that is really uh, fascinating. It's, uh, uh, I think, a counterpoint to our secular times. I think that, well, I don't think the book is going to convert any non-believers. I think it should confront, should force the, the so-called worldly wise, that's a term he uses throughout the book, to face the truth that faith was, you know, so important for one of the great public intellectuals of our time, one of the most influential intellectuals of our time. And I think that that is um, something that uh, we should talk about more um, if we're really going to be intellectual. In fact, when I was at, uh, at, a, at George Washington uh, before I got here, um, an academic colleague came up to me and said, you clerked for Justice Scalia, didn't you? And I said, yes, that's, that's true. And, and she said, you know, he's very, very smart. He's really great and he's brilliant and his writing is wonderful. But I had one question I was hoping I could ask you. I was like, okay, uh, I'm a little worried about what this, what this question's going to be. But she leans in and she says, how can he possibly believe all that religion stuff? And, you know, I actually, you know, was quite respectful because I think that one of the, one thing that my colleague was doing is I think she was questioning faith herself. That, that even most people just ignore it. In, in, in the world, in the secular world. They just ignore it and they say, oh, there's some speeches in religion, but I skipped over those. Now, this woman was really trying to sort of figure out this problem. And so I, I answered that, you know, it, this was very important to his worldview. It's certainly important to a lot of intellectuals uh, across history, um, some of whom he talks about, like, say, Thomas More. Um, Thomas Aquinas. I mean, there's a, there's a whole tradition there. And since this is jointly not just the Federalist Society, um, this, is, this is sponsored by um, the other group, too. And, and I think we should, you know, yes, yeah, St. Thomas More Society. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we should talk about that. And I think that that, that that is very important. And I don't think other justices, I've never heard another justice talk about his or her religion. Um, maybe, just, maybe Justice Thomas. I've heard Justice Thomas. Uh, uh, Justice Thomas. I, I haven't heard, heard it, but I'm sure he has. That he gave. Well, I, yeah, I, I should not have ignored the St. Thomas More mm -hmm. Society. Thank you for co-sponsoring this. Um, perhaps, um, I think Justice Scalia's favorite speech on a non-legal topic was a speech that we have here under the heading, The Christian as Cretan, um, which um, he often referred to by the nickname the two Thomases. This is a, it's his first speech in the On Faith section, uh, and it basically contrasts the worldviews of Thomas Jefferson and St. Thomas More. Thomas Jefferson, who actually spent some nights uh, at the White House during his presidency um, with his scissors, um, cutting up uh, parts of the Bible that he concluded um, were myth and leaving in those that he Included more factual. And 
Justice Scalia uh, contrasts him with uh, St. Thomas More, uh, who gave his life. Uh, a, man of, a man of great faith, great intellect. I mean, one might say that uh, I know Justice Scalia, I think, would be uh, uh, would blush at this comparison, but you know, maybe the Justice Scalia of, of his time, um, who had the courage to stand strong to the end and to be executed for it. And among other things, um, Justice Scalia emphasizes that Moore was unsupported by intelligent society, by his friends, even by his own wife. Uh, but, uh, but Moore was, see, was not seen with the eyes of men, but with the eyes of faith. Uh, very powerful speech here. Um, I think the first time uh, Justice Scalia gave this, the, or at least the first time it was reported, the Washington Post had uh, a puzzled story on the front page saying, you know, Justice Scalia is saying, you know, we must be fools for Christ. And the, the, the Post had no idea where that phrase came from, <laughs> not, not recognizing that, that, that it, was, it was from the Bible. So you do, see, you do see here the man in full and how important his faith was to him. I want to emphasize at the same time, and he, he talks about this repeatedly, that um, and, and perhaps most clearly in a speech under the heading Faith and Judging, that uh, he understood that his duty as a judge was not to indulge um, his religious or moral convictions or policy convictions on X, Y, or Z. And indeed, uh, while he's often been falsely accused of doing so, if you want to compare, uh, for example, his position on abortion or marriage or um, uh, the death penalty to that uh, uh, imposed by um, the court on those topics, his position has been, this is a matter that, for better or worse, is left to the democratic processes for decision. He never said, I'm going, to, I'm going to read or misread the Constitution to impose my view on this. It's instead those who, uh, who um, you know, wrote Roe and Casey uh, and, you know, and Obergefell uh, who, um, who took that approach. So um, you know, the charge of, uh, of, of theocrat here is um, deeply misplaced. He, 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 he would sometimes say there's only one commandment that he believed um, bore on his judicial duty. And that was the commandment, thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not lie about the meaning of the Constitution or the meaning of other laws. Uh, and thou shalt apply those laws faithfully, uh, including especially when that leads to results that you don't like. Now, of course, um, there could be situations in theory involving implicit complicity in, in, in evil. Um, Catholic Church has doctrines of formal and material cooperation that can get rather complicated. In, in such an instance, he would say, his obligation is to accuse himself from the case or even to resign as a justice, but not to, not to in, in, indulge those views. Other questions in the back? ACLU and William and Mary on the topic of free speech. <laughs> I mean, it's, worse, it's, it's far worse than you say. Go ahead. Yeah, so I'm just curious, and I don't know if some speech in the book or other ones you kind of talk through that uh, Justice Scalia was addressing a hostile audience. What lessons could speakers today learn from Scalia's approach to that? Uh, well, look, occasionally he had. Um, a hostile audience, or at least hostile participants in the audience. Um, and, you know, I think uh, he believed in respectful engagement. So if there's a question and answer period and someone asked, asked a proper question, he would answer. At times he, he encountered, um, you know, some appalling rudeness, and, and I don't think he thought that was um, uh, uh, suitable for the occasion. Um, but, uh, 
I think what we see most deeply is, is, is um, and, and again, his friendship with Justice Ginsburg reflects this, is his belief that, that argument is not an exercise in scoring points. It is instead um, designed to advance, you know, perhaps with some missteps towards the truth. And one of the things that he most admired about Justice Ginsburg, and this is true of some of his other colleagues and, and not true of some others, is that she engaged him in argument. She would do her best in opinions to answer his points. They'd have a back and forth. There's some other justices. Uh, you will see that if they have the five votes, um, they're, they're not, they're not going to bother trying to respond. Um, I think that drove him crazy at times. I mean, say, what, what sort of, what sort of uh, you know, reason judgment is this when you can't even respond to the art or you won't even respond to the arguments in dissent? So I, 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 again, I think he believed very much in engaging arguments. And um, if, a, if a hostile question were asked in a civil way, uh, he would be eager to engage it because that would be a learning opportunity. Uh, right. So, you know, this may not be exactly an answer to the question, but um, it feeds off of what Ed was just saying. The justice loved to argue. He loved to go back and forth. And in fact, I think one of the sure ways not to get the clerkship during the interview process was to seem that you would be too timid with the justice in argumentation and you wouldn't stand up for your position. Um, and so, I mean, I remember one of the uh, favorite moments that I had during clerkship here uh, was uh, in this one case, and once again, not, not I suppose, a high-profile case that you all have heard about, um, but justice came out of the oral argument with one perspective, and uh, all of the clerks had this other perspective about the case, and we just had this knockdown two hours of back and forth about the case, during which, you know, the justice was like, I should never have hired all four of you. What did I do? This is like a terrible mistake. And uh, we all leave for the day, and I, we come back the next morning, and, um, and my co-clerk, who was assigned to the case, gets a call from the justice who says, come into my office, and he's thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going to be berated again um, this morning and uh, be told what a fool I am. And the justice says, gosh darn it, you're right. Uh, we're going to do things your way. You, you guys were right about how I stick to my principles about how interpretation works. So um, the way in which perhaps that leads back to your own, to, to your question, is that um, I think you know the justice would have appreciated hostile in one sense, and that is that he appreciated being challenged. So he didn't want to go into an audience and hear a bunch of questions that seemed as though they were just fawning over the writing. And frankly, he never had that experience. Um, he liked to be challenged, um, and then. You know, obviously, there's a line at some point between rudeness and hostile. Well, I totally agree with Aditya. Uh, and, and in fact, one of my early memories uh, was that I was working alone with the justice in the very beginning of my clerkship on something. And we were going back and forth about it, and I had a different position. And at one point, and, and this was like a, a month into the clerkship, and, and he'd been away because it was summer for part of that time. So I really didn't know him very well. Um, but at, at one point, he just looks up at me and says, you have no idea what I'm talking about. And, you know, that's the point where you just feel your legs go to jelly. But, you know, he hired you. You, you know that he hired you to stick to his, you, know, you don't say, oh, I'm sorry, Justice Scalia, you stick to your guns. And, you know, that's what he hired you for. Now, I think that the, the problem with our society today is that we've lost that idea of civic engagement, which is definitely discussed in the book about, you know, the civic values. Um, and instead today, it's like we have this protest culture where people just chant slogans, which, which is not engagement at all. And I don't care whether it's the left or the right. And we've seen both of them here in Charlottesville, right? I mean, we've seen leftist protesters, but we've certainly seen right wing fanatics and, and, and horrible people, and they're just sitting there chanting things. Well, I don't think Justice Scalia would have the time of day for either of those. 
right? They're just, you know, behaving as it's just unintellectual. It's just unengaging. And it's not respecting the person on the other side, which I think he clearly always did. Um, and that leads to these cross-political friendships because he, he values the human spirit in the other person. And he's willing to talk to them. But he expects respect. He's going to give respect, and he expects respect back. And, and I think that that's one of the values that he talks about that we've, that we, you know, we're in short supply of these days. But often when he spoke again, he was eager to, to, to trigger disagreement. When he spoke to members of Congress back in 2011, he started off, you should be warned that I'll probably be telling you some stuff you do not want to hear. And he went on to, to say, look, you got, people complain about the um, imperial presidency. In lots of cases, that's because you guys aren't doing your job. You're the most powerful branch. You know, you're also the most dangerous branch. But you know, live up to your responsibilities. He put it a little more diplomatically than that. The, the, the last time I um, saw him, the last time I heard him speak, was at the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C. in early January 2016. This was a celebration of, of the 800th anniversary of the Dominicans. The um, greatest D Dominican, the, I should say the intellectual hero of, of Dominicans is Thomas Aquinas. He used his speech at this celebration to say, you know, Thomas Aquinas might well have been great on, on uh, theology generally, but when he talks about the law, he gets the relationship between positive law and, and natural law wrong. <laughs> you know, he sounds like Justice Brennan to me. <laughs> well, those are fighting words. And you know, he engaged, the, he, he, you know, he, he, I guess you could say, he triggered the audience. Um, <laughs> um, and there was a lively exchange. It, it's true, actually, there's another speech, I can't pull it up right here at the moment, but it was, I believe, between, before Cato where he has this great line where he says, you know, the secret to my success is saying the right thing at the wrong time, where he goes and he, you know, he figures out what, what is the one thing he believes that's going to really trigger the disagreement with, the, with people in the audience of the conservative Cato, which is more of a sort of libertarian group. Um, and, he then and he chose that to speak about, because, and not because he was disrespecting them, but because he was respecting them. He didn't just want to be you know, somebody who's going to, you know, praise them or praise something that they agree on. Instead, he actually valued intellectual disagreement. Well, thank you all. I think we're at the end here. Let me um, highlight that the book is available for $25 over there as compared to the retail price of $30. I'm happy to stick around a little bit and sign if it doesn't devalue um, the, 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 the book for you. And, um, you know, again, I, I'm confident you really enjoy it. And thank, thank you, John and Aditya. Thank you for being here.